Hi, everybody. It has been, um, man, it has been a long time. I think the last time I was able to actually be here as a part of the teaching team was, I think, October, like the beginning of October. So it's been a while. And I'll admit, I'm looking around the room and I don't recognize a lot of faces. That's kind of cool, which also means you don't know who I am. <laughs> so, um, but, well, okay. <laughs> um, I am tasked with the, I am, I'm given the task this morning of introducing a new series that we're going to be doing on the life of Joseph. And my job today is to tell the family history leading up to the, the birth of and the beginning of the story of Joseph, which means that I'm going to go from Abraham all the way to Joseph, which is like four generations, in 35 minutes. I am not going to do a perfect job at that. <laughs> but one of the things as I was praying about this, and honestly, the stories of the patriarchs from Abraham on forward and into the story of Joseph is one of the, I love this story. I love the history of it. I love the way that God interacts. And so before I even begin to do, and let's be honest, it's going to be more like a 10,000-foot overview. It's not going to go into all the details. It's going to be as much as I can get in in 35-ish minutes. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to just share with you a few things that I think are the overarching takeaways that I want us to get today as we're looking at this. And... Let's see. The first thing that I want us to, to, to sit and think of this as we look through the details of this has to do with the way God interacts with humanity. Imperfect, fallible, broken humanity and a perfect, infallible, wonderful God. And the intersection of that reality as we look at it, I, I, I feel really heavily this morning as I come up here that, that we... Maybe all of us, always all of us, but I think specifically there are some today that need to understand and apprehend for yourself, for your own story, that God interacts, God loves, God shows up, and God is faithful to the faithless. God is perfect in his dealings with the imperfect. When he says what he will do, he does, in spite of our best efforts to derail it. In fact, there's a, there's a quote that I shared a while back when I was preaching here a while, while back last year, maybe even two years ago, who knows anymore. Is it even Sunday? I don't know. Um, and it says this, it says, when God called me, he already factored into that calling my stupidity. So that's reassuring to me that God knows us and he knows he knows us, and yet he still promises us what he will do. So there's that, that takeaway that I want you to hold on to as we're looking at this. The second thing that I want to bring up is this reality that, trust me when I say, there is nobody on earth throughout all of history or in the future who will be able to nail this one down and tell you with definitive anything like how this works out. But God is a sovereign God. Now, a lot of us may have grown up in church cultures that would say God is in control. But that word control doesn't really accurately reflect the way that God works and operates with us. 
Sovereignty is a much better term. And what sovereignty means is that he has authority. Authority and control are different. And so something that we need to see as we walk through this is that God makes these statements to his people, saying, this is what I'm going to do. And in his sovereignty, he accomplishes it. Now, if he were a controlling God, we'd see a very different story than what we see. But as a sovereign God, what that means is no matter what choice we make in our selfishness, in our fear, in our doubtlessness, in our brokenness, in our sin, God has the authority to take those things and move them into his promises and accomplish what he has decided he is going to do. And I want to say to everyone here today, and I know, I just feel in my heart that there are some of you today that have labored under that, that statement of God is in control which then has to interpret all of our foolish choices as God's working. And it is not. We need to own our dumb choices. Can I get a hearty amen to that? But what we can rest in is that regardless of the choices that we make, God as a sovereign God has the authority to take our mistakes and our good choices regardless of either, of our completely benign choices, of every choice and every action and those done to us and still accomplish his purposes and his will. So I just wanna break off right now as we look at this story, which is heavy laden with statements that God says, this is what I'm gonna do, this is what's gonna happen, this is what I'm gonna do. And we read into that control and what we need to read into it instead is sovereignty and what we need to read into our own lives is God's sovereignty, not his control. Okay? All right. The third thing that I want to put in our heads and our hearts as we look at this story, which is incredibly important and really descriptive as we look in this story, is the impact of our own choices throughout generations. Now, there's another loaded term in Christian culture, which... If you haven't been in Christian culture, if you're brand new to Christian culture, hi, welcome. <laughs> You've missed the 90s, which means you don't have to carry around a huge Bible with your name embossed into it to get into the culture. Now you just have to like, I don't know, show up late and drink coffee during the service and then you're in. But for those of us who, are, who have been in Christian culture for a long time, um, there's a term that maybe you've heard. It's called generational sin. And in, in anyone that's grown up, I think, through the Frank Peretti years or the over-spiritualized years where spiritual like warfare was on the tip of everyone's tongue and there was a demon under every bush, we've looked at that term and we felt it loaded with some supernatural reality that sometimes it has, but more than often, it is just the consequences of our own choices that play out through generations. I'll give you an example of that for my own life before I go into this story. And in my own life, in my own family history, since we're talking about family history here today, in my own family history, on just one side of my family, I can look at my father's side of the family, and I can look and I can see that in like five generations, there's not one single intact marriage. That single thing of, broke, of divorce played out through five generations, you can bet it has an impact. You can bet that the consequences of all of that brokenness flow down the stream and affect me. 
And when we look at that and we look at the reality of generational sin, I also want to say that there's a reality of generational virtue. That when we make right choices and good choices, that spills out in generation over generation too. Again, not because we have no choice, but because the influence of it is powerful. So let me say that again. The influence of choices are powerful for generations, but they are not absolute determiners of our behavior or actions. We get to make choices. So if you are looking back over your family history, and I'll tell you this, as we look over the history of Joseph's family, and we look at all of the choices made and all of the consequences, if we had this determinant thinking in our mind that those choices will make my choices for me, then Joseph's story makes no sense because he breaks generational sin over and over again. He breaks that power. And I want to say to all of you here today, you can too. Because we have a good God. Those are three points that I want you to think about as we are walking through this. And if I could just put it more aptly, God uses the imperfect to accomplish the perfect will that he has set for us. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump and I'm going to encourage you. My telling of this history is going to start in Genesis 12. And if, again, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And chapter 12 through like chapter 30-something is what we're going to be covering and talking about today. In 35 minutes. Yes, we'll see. So at the beginning of chapter 12, you have this character named Abram who later becomes Abraham in the telling of the story. I won't go into all the details, but Abram is living in a land called Haran. And it's basically in the northwest of what would be current day Iraq. He's surrounded by a pagan culture. This is a few generations, several generations after the flood of Noah, when humanity is beginning to build up again. And even though God did the control alt delete on humanity and started over, it only took them a few generations to become real bad again. And here you have Abram living in this land that has like adulterous religion and, and immorality and a whole bunch of stuff. And here's this guy, and he was about 75 years old, which back then was sprightly and young, because they lived like 200, 300, 400 years sometimes, when the Lord calls to him. And he simply says this in Genesis 2 to 3. This is the first promise he makes. He says, he calls him, he says, go to a land that I will show you. Out of nowhere, go to a land that I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Made him a promise. And so Abram goes, he leaves the land. He gathers his people, his wife, Sarai, and he leaves with his people to go to the land that God will show him. Now, the thing I want to say about this and apply to our own lives, I don't know when the Lord first encountered you, but I remember when I first became aware of the Lord and his call on my life to serve him. And I was young. I was not 75. I was young. And I remember the excitement and the thrill of knowing and believing that the God of the universe had just communicated to me. And I gave my life to him. And I think a lot of us had that experience, that first time encounter with the Lord, where we would have said, 
I will follow you anywhere. I will do whatever you say. You are God and you've called me and I'm going. Anyone relate to that? I remember that excitement and Abram demonstrates that excitement and that, that commitment by taking all and going. And just like we can see in our own story, maybe just me, maybe some of you have walked very perfectly with, nope, okay, great. As we can see in Abraham's story and probably in our own story that that initial commitment to follow the Lord and follow him with that overwhelming promise of I will do and go wherever you say, it doesn't last a long time. And it's not like the trajectory is not going where he said to go, but it's that same thing that I think we encounter where the longer it is from the time we hear from the Lord, the more we begin to doubt and the more our humanity begins to creep up and the more we make choices that don't reflect faith, but reflect doubt or fear. It's not long, literally. Genesis 12, verses two and three is when God makes this promise. Genesis 12 Verse 10 is where we first start seeing Abraham or Abram in this moment, not resting in the promise that God said to him. And here's how it plays out in this first moment. As they go, there was a famine in the land that they went to. And so they went down to Egypt to live there because of the famine. Now, you, I want you to know that happens multiple times in this story, including in the life of Joseph. And when they go there, as they are about to enter Egypt, Abram says to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let you live. So say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. He's going to lie because he's fearing for his life. So the consequence of this is he lies and Pharaoh takes his wife into his home and by all accounts makes, his, makes Sarah his wife and sleeps with her. Now, right now, can we just say, what kind of bull crap is that? <laughs> this is Father Abraham who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Left foot, right foot, right arm. Anyone? VBS? They don't say Father Abraham sold his wife to Pharaoh to have as his wife. It was ugly. It really was. So let's just move along, along, along. No. What this reflects is Abraham immediately not believing the promise that God said to him. Immediately, within a few verses, which could have spanned months or years in the timeline of how this historical narrative goes, but he doesn't believe. And so he begins manipulating the circumstances to try to accomplish what he thinks his purpose is. Who has ever done that? Oh, listen, if I have to be up here raising my hand in front of you and all the online audience, you had better start participating. Who else has done that? Okay, I'm not going to go in, chrono in the chronological way, but I'm going to say that this generational sin happens over and over again for four generations. Where you see those that are called by God and promised by God very specific things, they get afraid, they start doubting, and they start making decisions to manipulate how the outcome will be. 
Let's jump ahead. Genesis 15. Abraham, at this point, is still Abram. And as he's moving along in life and limb, I think God begins to understand through his actions, which he knew ahead of time because he is God, that Abram is dealing with doubt and fear. And so God does what I know he has done for me, and I guess he has done for all of you. He begins to reassure him of what he said. But he adds more detail because Abram's made some dumb choices. So he says, Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. That does not sound like a happy promise. But for you and me, wouldn't we rather know if there's going to be difficulty coming so that we know that God knows? I know I've been in moments in life where the Lord has been speaking to me about a direction he wants me to go, and he has, whether through the word of God or whether through a word from someone or whether just to my heart directly or whatever it is, God reminds me, sometimes the plans are a little bit rocky of a road. And sometimes there are things that happen that aren't perfect, but they have a purpose. And so the Lord says, this is what's going to happen. Your, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They'll be enslaved and mistreated there for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, Abram, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Saying, you're going to be fine. I'm just telling you what's going to happen in the future generations. Because I'm still going to do what I said I was going to do. And he says to him, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the land I've promised you. And they will overtake it. And he says this, they'll come back for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, which I'm not going to go into that whole thing, but we could have a whole conversation about how God works in time and space with generations. But he is a fair and a loving God, and he has purposes for the timeline. There's just one thing he says there. This is going to happen. I'm going to bring your people back. They're going to have great possession. They're going to be in this land. You're going to die old and fat and happy, though. So God has made him several promises. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to be, you know, I'm going to do this through you. I'm going to give you possession. I'm going to give you this land. And years keep going by. And Abram starts getting impatient with this reality because his wife, Sarah, has not had any children. So you skip forward in the story in Genesis 16, and you see this interaction where Sarah is getting frustrated. She hasn't had any children. It's a big deal. There's no, in, there's no heir to all the possessions. So Sarah says to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my, sl my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Again, not believing what the Lord has said she, that he will do and manipulating the circumstances to try to accomplish God's will in our lives. And in the interest of time, we are not going to go into all the consequences that have happened from generation to current day from that choice. But I will say we know, if you know the story, Hagar, Sarah's slave girl, is given to Abraham. He sleeps with her. They have Ishmael. Ishmael turns out to be the father of the nation of Islam. Abraham, of course, is the father of the Jews. Is there a little tension in that family? Still current day tension? 
But again, God is a good God. And he says in verse 19, after this happens, after Ishmael is born, after this blows up in the most dysfunctional family system you could ever imagine, he then says, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. God reassuring Abram of the plan specifically and making accommodation and blessing for the way Abram took matters into his own hands. What good God is that that works within our humanity? And yet, as we move forward in the story, Isaac is born, and we have the tension of the two brothers, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is sent away. God takes care of him and blesses him. But the blessing that God gave to Abram, he passes to Isaac. All the blessing, all the promise, all the covenantal promise passes to Isaac. And Isaac moves forward to have, as we, as again, the story is moving very fast, but read it and see all the details. Isaac moves forward. He finds a wife from his, his mother's family, his father's the family back in near Iraq, and that is Rebecca. And as this goes, Rebecca conceives twins. I'm a twin. I don't know if you know this, but twin relationships are inherently and genetically jacked up. <laughs> I can say that with authority, and any twin in the room can also probably say, yeah, that's true. These twins are wrestling in her womb, and the Lord says to Rebecca, when she goes, what's going on in there? He says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples and two peoples from within you will be separated, and one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Again, God is saying, this is what's going to happen. He doesn't say how it's going to happen. He just says, the older is going to serve the younger. But when we move through that story and the family dynamics of that, we see the story of Jacob and Esau. And we see that Esau was favored by Isaac. And we see that Jacob was favored by Rebekah. Can I just say this real quick to add into this whole dynamic that we're talking about? Favoritism in family is also generational sin. How many here in this room have been the victim in your family of knowing you're not the favorite? Can I just say I'm really sorry? Sincerely, can I say that I'm really sorry for that? Because there is a deep pain that comes from believing that you're not loved as much and believing that you're not as valued as much and believing that you don't have the same share in the love or inheritance in a family. And that passed down in this family dynamic from Abraham with Ishmael and Isaac to Isaac with Jacob and Esau. And it will pass down from Jacob who becomes Israel to his 12 sons. This dynamic of favoritism and strife that creates some of the most weird dynamics in this biblical family history. Now, God does not say that Jacob will be a deceiver and he'll steal the blessing from Esau. He does not ordain that dysfunction and deceit and sin will be how this happens. God says the older will serve the younger. But in our own humanity, in our dysfunction, we see it play out. 
And I want us to know that as we look at this story so that we don't say God intended Jacob to be a liar and a deceiver, that he intended Esau to have no self-control, that he intended for there to be this strife within this family. God did not intend that, but God is good to operate within our dysfunction. Take that as a blessing for all of you. I take it as a blessing for me. Amen and amen. So in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into all of how that plays out. But I will say that read the story of Jacob and Esau because, again, it sets a context. And we once again see in Isaac and Rebekah, we see the same dynamic where Isaac says, when they go to a new country, she's my sister. That sin plays out in two generations. And by the way, Abraham not only did that once, he did it twice. Boo. Boo, Father Abraham. So we move forward in the story. And then we get through Isaac and Rebekah with Jacob and Esau. And we see all the family dynamics at play. So much so that Jacob has to flee for his life because of the sibling rivalry and strife and dysfunction and deception that happened in this dynamic. He goes and he reaches his family, his mother's brother, Laban. Now, let me ask you this. Does deception run in families sometimes? Look at your own family. Look at your choices. Look at your life. Do sins run in families sometimes? Yeah. So when he goes to his mother's brother, he meets Rachel, who he wants to marry. Laban, her father, says, yes, you can marry Rachel. Just work for me for seven years and you can marry her. Deal. Wedding night. It ain't Rachel. If you read the story, you know that Leah had weak eyes. I don't know what that means. I don't know if she made your eyes weak when you looked at her. If she was just like, hey, you know, or I, but it's true. Like she was not, she was the older sister and she wasn't married. So at the wedding day, Laban trades Leah for Rachel, which I, in our world, I don't know how that would work, but there it is. He has to have Leah. He works for another seven years for Rachel. You have now two sisters, one who wasn't wanted and was forced into a relationship with Jacob, one he wanted and favored. How do you think favoritism is going to go in a multiple marriage? Not well. And the generational sin, again, of taking matters into your own hands and trying to accomplish God's will through rivalry and strife and deception and favoritism begins to happen. And you see in this dynamic, as Jacob begins to have children, you see this painful reality happen within this family system where Leah, knowing that she wasn't loved, you can read this in Genesis 29, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless, the favored wife. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. He named, she named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. And then she has Simeon and Levi and Judah, just bam, 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 children. Genesis 30, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. A little bit of drama. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, here is Bilhah, 
my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. No, girl, no. That is not what happened. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Bilhah had another son too, Naphtali. Now, by the way, again, let's just look at this for our own lives. How many of us have made a choice, manipulated the circumstances, and said, God did it? Raise your hands. Let's be family. Listen, the senior pastor just raised his hand. So you know what? If all you aren't raising your hands, you ain't being honest in this room. And the Lord sees. So I'm going to say this one more time. How many of you have manipulated circumstances and said, oh, God did this for me? Raise your hand. You are in the company of the patriarchs, of the very people God has chosen That should give us great comfort. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, you ever heard that old song, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better? She took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. She named him Gad. Leah's servant bore Jacob another son. Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher, Gad and Asher. Then Leah had two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. And then Rachel had Joseph. After all this time, child number 11, Joseph. Now, if we look back on the four generations I've accomplished in 20 minutes, In just those few things, we can see manipulation and fear. We can see doubt. We can see faithlessness. We can see um, disregarding what God has said he will do. We can see this operating procedure that basically says, if God says he's going to do it, it's on me to do it, not God. Now, please don't hear me wrong Please don't hear me say that God does not ask of us to do and to participate in his will. He does. Do not hear me say that our choices and the way that we live and operate doesn't matter in the way God accomplishes his purposes. It does. But when God says, I am going to do this, when God says, I will accomplish this, what I want us to see in this story is it's not in spite of our sin. And it's not in spite of our actions. And it's not that he will make it happen only if we're perfect, that our perfection matters. It's that God as a sovereign God who has authority will take any choice that we make, any choice that we make and repurpose it for his purposes to accomplish his will. A major theme that we're going to be resting on as we walk through the story of Joseph is found in Genesis 50, verse 20. And this is Joseph's own reflection on the culmination of the entire story, which I will not go into, but if you know it, you know when this 
happens, or you know the context of this, but Joseph says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that word intended in the original Hebrew doesn't necessarily mean that it's a preordained plan. It means, like in the negative sense, it might mean connived. It might mean manipulated. It might mean um, orchestrated. It might mean reordered. But it, what, it, what it holds in it is intention. It's to say, what I have, I will make this. So in, in the context of this, we see in this family history, we see enormous amount of brokenness and pain. We see an enormous amount of faithlessness and doubt and fear. We see horrible choices. We see humanity. We see ourselves. I see myself in the story of all these generations. You see, I see a kid at four years old who gave his life to Jesus with excitement. And then I see a kid who watched his family fall apart. And I watched a kid who felt so insecure that he thought he had to earn God's favor. I saw a kid in this, and I see this in this family dynamic and this history of these people of a person who is so afraid to disappoint God that he thinks it's his job to make what God said he would do happen. I see really bad sexual choices, which of course is part of my story too. I see fear and I see doubt. And in all of that, I see a sovereign God who takes the broken pieces of our own decision-making, who takes the fallible nature, our faithlessness, even though we have faith, even though we do believe God is good, even though we do believe he'll do what he says, we don't always believe that he will be good to actually do it. I see that duplicitous nature and I see God working in it to accomplish his perfect plan. This story is our story. This story is God's story. More than any of the details, more of any, uh, any of the historical or cultural context, it's the story of how God interacts with imperfect humanity to bring about his perfect plan. I wanna challenge you guys throughout this week to read the backstory to actually go through and read this history, to read into it not just the facts, because sometimes in historical narrative, we read it and we forget the humanity of it, but to read the emotion into it, to read the pain into it, to read the insecurity and fear into it, to then think about your own life and your own interactions with God in the moments, your darker, not so proud moments where you did something because maybe God was taking a long time to do what he said he was gonna do. Maybe a promise didn't come as it was as you thought it would come or when you thought it would come. And so you manipulated or took matters into your own hands. And then I want you to think about how often maybe people have looked at you and said, see, you did that. You took it into your own hands. Yeah. But can God take that reality and still bring his perfect will? Yes. Yes, he can. And he does. You see, the enemy of our souls, if we really want to talk spiritual warfare, the enemy of our souls wants us to believe that somehow through our failings, we can derail the plan of God. That somehow, because we've got into our head that God is in control, not sovereign, 
We either have to believe that he intended our bad choices, or we have to believe that somehow we've wrecked his plan by making bad choices. And because we have a sovereign God, not a God who's in control, we have to understand that the authority of God is to take whatever choice, life choice or death choice, and make it serve his purposes. Because what the enemy has intended for evil, what we might intend for selfishness or insecurity or fear, God intends for life. Amen? So do me this favor. Do yourself this favor. Look at the story. Look at the family history. Look at the impact of choices over generations. Sure, keep that in context. But in all of it, Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the faithfulness of God that he does exactly what he says he's going to do. That he takes every choice, every broken thing, and repurposes it for his pleasure and his glory because he's just that good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these people, for all joining us online. Thank you for the ways that each of our lives can represent and retell the story of your sovereignty and your goodness and your redemption. Father, this week, as we look through that history and as we look at our own, Father, show us the ways that you have purposed your goodness. Show us the ways that you are purposing your goodness. Sometimes the story isn't quite finished yet or it's still in process, but let us rest, not in our ability to be faithful to you, but in your ability to be faithful to us. You are a good God. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's great name, amen. God bless you all. Have a great day.